the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. Morning, everyone. Is that all right? Is that the right height? Everyone hear me well? Good. Um, first of all, let me add my welcome to Christine's. It's so wonderful to be with you here this morning. Um, my name's Gemma. I'm a member here at Belmont. Uh, and it's my genuinely my absolute privilege to be opening God's word up with you and exploring it with you today. Um, if you've been here at any point over the last six months or so, you might have heard a sermon on John. Uh, That's because as a church, we are slowly but surely working our way through John's account of the uh, life and ministry. So that's kind of like the conversations, the teaching, the actions, uh, the death and resurrections. That is the rising again uh, of Jesus Christ. And this morning, um, I get to pick up where Johnny left us last week, right at the end of John chapter four. As through another one-to-one encounter, uh, we get to meet... uh, the lord of time and space. Now, if your brain works anything like mine, when you uh, heard that title, this is what you thought of. Um, Maybe maybe it didn't, but that's where my brain went. And it's easy to think of Jesus in this sort of way, I think, of a man kind of wandering around with his companions, doing all these wonderful and incredible things, and ultimately saving the day for everyone involved. But as I'm hoping we'll kind of come to realise by the end of our time together this morning, there is so much more to Jesus than just that. Uh, And according to John, to kind of build our life, our faith solely, on that kind of man, well, we might be missing out on something a little bit. So let me pray for us. You can't get enough prayer, guys. Let me pray for us, and then I'll crack on exploring this last little bit of John chapter 4. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the, the power that it has to challenge us and to shape us and renew us. We thank you for the way that it speaks to us and into the situations we face as we come together now to explore this last little bit of this chapter. Holy Spirit, we just ask that you'll be with us. Speak to me and speak to us as we explore together. Open our hearts and our minds to hear and respond to your gentle nudges and encouragement. Help us as individuals, but also as one body together to be open to your challenge. I pray through what we hear now, you will shape us more into the people you intended us to be. Amen. Thank you, guys. Now, um, we're going to be predominantly in John chapter 4, 43 to 54, but we're also going to be darting around the book of John a little bit. So if you do have a Bible, you might find it helpful to have it on or open, uh, just so you can kind of follow as we move around. So, after two days hanging out with these new followers that Jesus meets in Samaria that we kind of looked at last week, Jesus heads back to Galilee. Now, this is a place where John suggests Jesus might not be all that respected. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out, that's what it says in verse 44, that a prophet has no honour in his own country. Now, there's a debate among commentators about kind of what John is talking about here. Okay, is he talking about Jerusalem? Is he talking about the Jewish nations? Is he talking about Galilee more specifically? What we do know, though, is that Jesus is a Nazarene. He's from Nazareth, and Nazareth is part of Galilee. So as he walks into Galilee, he's walking back into his home turf. And rather than being greeted in the way that 
John kind of leads us to think he will be greeted, we see that he's welcomed by people in verse 45. And why? Well, because they had seen all that Jesus had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival. Now, in case you weren't here, or you don't remember, or you don't have an encyclopedic memory of John... Not many people do, guys. Uh, John is referring us back to this almost like throwaway comment at the end of John chapter 2, where he writes, Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. So these people that are greeting Jesus now are, in theory, those people that kind of saw what was happening at the Passover. Jesus arrives then back in Galilee in his homeland to these crowds that are expecting to see more of what they saw before. And what does Jesus do? Well, he takes them back to Cana, okay, where John really helpfully reminds us that Jesus has already performed a sign, a wonder, what these people are after. This is where he turned water into wine. And it's here that he's met by this royal official, who has heard that Jesus is back in the land and comes down from Capernaum, which is up there, about 20 miles away, to Cana to beg Jesus to heal his son. Now, this man, like uh, the Samaritans that we've just read about earlier in the chapter, is likely not a Jew. We don't know for sure, but the chances are he's not. And yet he makes this really difficult journey over really hilly terrain to beg Jesus to heal his son. And he does this in the, in the daylight, right? He does this in front of the crowds. He's not hiding anything. He's coming in the open to Jesus because he's a desperate dad. He's looking for a cure. Uh, Edward Clink writes this, the imminent threat of death to his son has motivated the father to search for life. And this leads him to Jesus. Hold on to that thought as we carry on. So how does Jesus respond to the man's request? Well, I haven't chatted this through with Laura, but I think Jesus's pastoral care needs a little bit of work. If I'm being honest, that might be controversial. You didn't receive that well at all. Uh, This man, but bear with me, I'll tell you why. This man has asked Jesus uh, to heal his son who is dying. This man's son is dying. And how does Jesus respond? Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. Jesus is almost talking through the man to make a dig at this man who has literally turned up wanting a sign and wonder. Yeah, And the crowd that are around him who are also there to witness a sign and wonder. But this father is undeterred by this. The royal official asked Jesus again, Sir, come before my child dies. And Jesus replies, Go, your son will live. Now, the royal official has a choice here, right? Option one is to beg Jesus again to come with him to see his son so that he can see physically with his own eyes this miracle, this sign, this wonder, this healing happen. Or... The other option is to do as Jesus says, to go and trust that his son will live because Jesus has said so. Now, John sets us up 
to think that it will be the former, right? Because John's told us, unless these people see signs and wonders, they don't believe. And the man is counted in that, right? But then John says this. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. And it's that that I would love us to spend the rest of our time thinking about this morning. Now, uh, spoiler alert, that's not really a spoiler alert because you just had it read to you. Uh, The man's son is healed, okay? Uh, It turns out that it happens at the exact moment Jesus declares him to be alive. What a coinkydink. And we have these two miracles now, these two signs, these two wonders that Jesus somewhat reluctantly performs in Cana. So there's this one uh, at the end of John chapter 4. And then there's the first one that his mum makes him do at a wedding uh, in the beginning of John chapter 2. I think these signs bookend like a section of John's gospel, right? That is trying to reveal something to us before we go any further into the ministry and life of Jesus in the rest of John's gospel. Stay with me. After the wine miracle in John chapter 2, John writes that this is the first of the signs through which Jesus declared uh, his glory. And after this miracle, we see a really similar refrain there in verse 54. Now, glory in Hebrew uh, is kavod, okay? And this means like respect and honor and majesty and importance. I think... John is telling us here that these signs, these wonders, these miracles are supposed to declare and point us towards respect, honour, majesty and the importance of Jesus, but not in the way that we might think. Bear with me. I think John has set it up So that we have a reluctant miracle in Cana at the beginning of John chapter 2. Another reluctant miracle in Cana at the end of John chapter 4. To almost highlight and point us towards what is revealed in the middle of those two. Now you might be sat there going, Gem, that's great. But what is revealed in the middle of those two? Well, shall we have a little look? Yeah, go on, let's do it. After the miracle in Cana, we see Jesus clearing out the temple courts, don't we? He drives out the cattle and the sheep. He scatters the coins of the money changers. It's here where Jesus hints at what is to come. When asked uh, what authority Jesus has to do this in chapter 3, Jesus answers, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. John helpfully informs us uh, that Jesus is telling us about his own resurrection in verses 21 and 22. And so it's here that we learn that Jesus is not only the place where people are going to come and meet with God, because it says that his body is the temple, he is the temple, uh, but also that he's going to die and he's going to rise again. Move to chapter 3. And at the beginning of chapter 3, we're introduced to Nicodemus. And we read about his encounter with Jesus. What's revealed to us here? Well, that Jesus is the key to eternal life. Let me read for you John chapter 3, 16 to 18. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Remember, these are Jesus's words. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Then we move on to the end of chapter three. uh, And John the Baptist is being asked questions about Jesus. Uh, And what does John the Baptist say? Well, he says that this Jesus guy is the Messiah. We're going to come to what that means in a minute. Um, But also, John the Baptist says this Jesus guy is exactly who he says he is. Look at chapter 3, verses 35 and 36 with me. The Father loves the Son. This is what John the Baptist says. And has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. They're basically Jesus' words, guys. John is using effectively the same words here as Jesus has just used. And then we move on to John chapter 4, which I imagine is super fresh in your minds if you were here last week. And we have Jesus declaring two really big things. The first is that he is living water. He's the only thing that will ever satisfy, that will ever fulfill that longing. Can you remember what Johnny said to us last week? Only Jesus can quench that thirst from within. That's what, that's what Johnny said. And the second is that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, that's a word that we don't really have now, a word we don't really use other than probably in this building, in this place. But basically, Jesus is saying, I'm the long-awaited rescuer, the long-awaited saviour, the long-awaited king. I'm the one that is going to make everything right again. And so, in between these two reluctant miracles that take place in Cana, Jesus and John the Baptist, who is a messenger, a forerunner for Jesus, declare these things. They declare that Jesus is the place where people will meet with God, that he is going to die and rise again, that he is the only way to eternal life, that he is the son of God, that he is the way to be right before God, that he is the only thing that will ever satisfy us fully, that he is the long-awaited Messiah, rescuer, saviour, king, and that he is the only one that will be able to make things right again. Now, these aren't signs and wonders. These aren't miracles. These are declarations and they are words. And yet, these things are the things that should prompt that response of respect and honour and majesty and importance towards Jesus. If these signs and wonders, these miracles are there to point us to Jesus' glory, then may I suggest that this is the glory that they are pointing us to. See, as humans, particularly me as a person, uh, we are drawn to moments of drama. Quite dramatic, that's what I was told the other day. Uh, To awe, to wonder. That's what makes us slow down when we see flashing lights on a motorway. That's why flash mobs uh, are so effective in crowded shopping centres. We are drawn in by big moments. 
And yet John is telling us that these big moments are only half the story. The wine and the healing are amazing. I'm not taking anything away from that. They are brilliant, brilliant things that we get to see. But they are only as brilliant as they are because they point us to Jesus. And they point us to all that Jesus has revealed in himself. The signs and wonders that we have witnessed, that we will witness as we continue our time in John's gospel, aren't what brings the glory to Jesus, right? Might be controversial, but I don't think they are. These people were obsessed by signs and wonders. It was signs that that their belief, their faith, their interest was built upon. And that's why Jesus is so sceptical at the end of John chapter 2. And that's why he's so brutal uh, in verse 48 of our passage this morning. Jesus knows that, that a faith built on signs and wonders will not get you very far. Because as soon as those signs and wonders stop, as soon as they dry up, as soon as they don't come when we want them to come, That's the minute that our faith, our trust, our belief, our interest in Jesus starts to crumble. Edward Klink, who uh, has written a commentary on John, he asks us this. He asks us whether we worship Jesus for the wonders he can perform or for the wonder that he is. And I think that's a challenge to us, right? Whether we're exploring Christianity and church right now, which if you are, please know you're so welcome here. So great to have you here. We are so blessed to have you and we'd love to to walk with that journey with you. Or whether we're people who have put our trust in Jesus, are following Jesus, are loving Jesus in our day-to-day life. We We need to make sure that we're choosing Jesus for all that he is and all that he has done not all that we may want him to do for us. We have to be so, so careful then that our faith isn't just this like signs and wonders faith, that our faith isn't just built upon what Jesus can do for me. Because like, I really hate to break it to you, Jesus isn't a genie. Um, He's not a fairy godparent. Uh, Our wish is not his command, yeah? John seems to suggest that a faith built solely on what Jesus can do for me isn't a faith in Jesus really at all. And actually, it doesn't bring him any glory either. What does bring him glory, though, I think, is what we see modelled in the the Samaritan woman last week and the rest of her town. It's what we see modelled in this father, too. It's the recognition and acceptance and demonstration of these truths in our own lives. It's the first time and all the other times that we hear Jesus' words and we believe like the woman did. When we decide to take Jesus at his word and go, even though we might not have seen or experienced the truth with our own eyes or in our own lives like the man does in our story this morning. Because we trust Right? We trust in all that Jesus says he is and all that he says he has done. And we decide that that is enough for us. That is enough 
for us. See, in contrast to the crowd that surrounded him, whose acceptance of Jesus was dependent on the wonder that came from the sight of signs, the man takes Jesus at his word alone and walks away. For that father, as desperate as he is to see his son saved, to see his son alive again, Jesus' word is enough. It's enough. That man, he, he walks away. And, and when he does, he doesn't know, right? He doesn't know if his son is healed. And yet he is able to trust Jesus enough to depart. And I wonder, could we do that? Like, can we do that? Because I I think that's the challenge for us this morning. With the things that we're waiting for, the things that we're desperate for, the things that we are begging for, can we take Jesus at his words and say, that is enough? Can we trust that, that he is with us that he is enough for us, that he is all that we will ever need and depart, walk away, knowing that Jesus has got us. Full disclosure, I'm not sure I can. I'm not sure I do. But I know that I really, really want to. Maybe you're in the same boat as me this morning. In a minute, uh, we're going to take communion. And that's the time where we remember perhaps the, the biggest sign and wonder that, that Jesus ever gave to us, right? But that too points us back to what we see declared here. To the words and declarations that Jesus spoke before he went to the cross. And as we go into that time of communion, um, I would love us just to take a moment to think What does it look like for us to take Jesus at his words and depart? What does it look like for his word to be enough for us? I'd also love us to think about whether his word is enough for us. To build our life upon, our future upon, our whole existence and being upon. I think that there's the whole point of this section of John's gospel, chapter two to to chapter four, it is to warn us against getting too caught up in the signs and wonders. And I think this encounter is here to remind us that we are called to take Jesus at his word and his word alone. Because it's that that reveals his glory, right? Because signs and wonders are great. They really are. They give us something really tangible to to hold on to, to believe in. But Hebrews 11 verse 1 tells us that faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Caroline Lewis, in her commentary, writes that Jesus' words are true because there is a correlation between what he says and what he does and who he is. Jesus is truth because he is the one on whom we can be utterly 
dependent. That's what the father was able to see that the crowd didn't. He was able to see that without a sign or a wonder. Can we? Do we? Let me pray for us, and then I'll hand back over to Christine. Lord, we thank you for your words. We thank you for time spent exploring it together. We thank you that, um, that it alone is enough. Help us to be a people that are able to, to take you at your words and trust to, to be a people who, who aren't dependent on wonders and signs, but rather your words and the truth you've revealed to us. Help us to worship and follow you because of the wonder that you are, not the wonders that you perform. Amen.